Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. What's up, everybody? Just wanted to say thank you for listening to this podcast. It's been an amazing journey thus far, and I have a lot of really great stuff coming up in the future. Uh, so I'm going to do something that I haven't asked before. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, A, I would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast just so you get the notifications whenever we publish new episodes, because if you've been listening for a while, you know I don't always publish them consistently. Sometimes I'll publish five in a week. Sometimes it'll be only a couple in a month. And you need to know when these episodes drop. So be sure to subscribe. And if you like the podcast, be sure to go to your preferred platform like iTunes and leave a review. I would love to boost my reviews. And I've never asked you guys to do that before. So I figured you don't ASK, you don't GET. I would love a review from you. So I want to hear from you there. Also, we are now available on Spotify. Turns out I was just submitting it to Spotify incorrectly, but I corrected that, so now we're on Spotify. So if that's your preferred listening platform, be sure to subscribe on there. Also, just want to let you know that in 2019, we have an awesome new program coming called Tools of Type 1s. It's going to be on this podcast, so you don't have to subscribe anywhere new, but it's going to be an entirely new form of programming with some of your favorite Type 1 personalities. So there are going to be two a week starting January 8th. Be sure to tune in, and I'm going to blast all the messaging I can all around. So be sure to listen to Tools of Type 1s launching January 8th, and thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast. Hello, whoa, wow, that was a great start. Uh, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of people with type 1 diabetes from all across the world. And today, my very special guest, uh, I'm really, really excited about this, is Carrie Sparling. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you don't, I, I'm like already blindsiding you with questions or like comments, but... <laughs> Almost every diabetes blogger who's been around for the last like 10 or so years or has had type 1 for like 10 or so years has mentioned you in some point, like in a conversation with me about why they got into online advocacy. So oh. you, you have the Six Until Me blog. You are Carrie Sparling, speaker, author, blogger, extraordinaire. I'm like, I'm an honor. This is like hallowed ground we're on. No, dude, that's, I, that is really nice to hear, and um, I hope I can do it some justice. I'm sort of a hot mess all the time, so <laughs> I don't think people are privy to that as often as they are the diabetes stuff. Yeah, but I think that's what's great about you and what's like honest and vulnerable, and like you know, people don't want to be sold a life with diabetes that's all rainbows and butterflies, right? <laughs> no, good. Well, then that works out great because I don't have any of those. Well, great. Well, um, for those who listen to this podcast and may not be as familiar with your story, uh, your blog is Six Until Me, and that's a great transition sort of segue into your diagnosis at six years old. So let's talk well, okay. about it. 
so it's awkward right off the bat because I started blogging in 2005 before things like SEO and putting the word diabetes in your blog title was a thing and was a smart move. So my blog title is like this poetic version of how I was diagnosed. And I wasn't even six. I was seven. So the whole thing feels like a lie, like right at the outset, which feels super <laughs> wrong. But um, I started, and this is cool to talk about right away, I guess. Um, so I started wetting the bed when I was six. And so that was my first symptom and and like kind of how my body started to roll into the process of diabetes. But we just didn't detect the diabetes for several months. So it was six years and still I, until I started wetting the bed. And when you say the story of that out loud, like it doesn't sound as kind of streamlined and nice and poetic as I wanted it to. It's just a bedwetting story from baked in a little bit of a math lie. But I was seven. Okay, so you're seven. The bedwetting, yeah. I think I think every great story should start with a bedwetting story, <laughs> if like we're really being honest. If you really want to get I, down to like the honesty part of it. But I had a pee alarm. I, I don't know if I've told you this story before, but there was like a like a mechanism, mechanical thing that my parents bought to try to keep me from wetting the bed because they didn't know it was caused by high blood sugars. They thought it was just some kind of like childlike regression. So they bought me this pee alarm. Have you ever seen one of those things? I You're going to have to paint a picture for us. It's a horror show. So it's got these two metal nodes, and you're supposed to connect the two nodes inside your underpants. And we're starting off really well, I think, you and I. Yeah, and so I think this is going to be great. <laughs> Sorry. And so you connect the two nodes inside your underpants, and if they detect any liquid, there's this um, kind of wire that feeds off of the nodes and goes to almost like a pump-looking pack that you would wear on your waist. And if it detected moisture, the two nodes would connect, and this alarm would go off. So in the middle of the night, there was like a like a siren going off from my underpants. And I'm six years old, and so I had to run down the hallway, and my parents would disconnect the alarm, and it was this big panic point. And they did this because they thought it was just a bedwetting issue, not a diabetes thing. And just it was one of those things where, like, my mother in particular looks back at it and says, man, that was a horrible thing that we did to you. We bought you, like, an alarm clock <laughs> for peeing the bed when in fact it was this this more serious medical issue so i don't know they still sell them too i've looked at them on amazon they look terrifying oh my gosh mm -hmm. well at least we can lobby use this podcast as a way to lobby against under pee alarms. like pee alarms right and like <laughs> speaking of google seo what do you you know as a parent you google pee alarm how do i how do i get notified I when my child what's the bed is that the search i don't know stream? That well, my my diagnosis was in '86, so like an internet right. search return was not a thing. My mom had no one to ask, so they just bought the alarm and hoped for the best. Well, and I think that's, I mean, at, at the core of our discussion today, I'm sure, is going to be the diabetes community and how it's changed since 1986, right? Um, speaking of 2005, I was diagnosed um, back then. And oh, in 2005? No kidding. In 2005, January 1st, 2005, actually. Well, that's uh, convenient. It's really easy to remember. Like every New Year's, you know, in college, I'd wake up, I'd be hungover. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've had diabetes <laughs> another year now. It's great. Let's watch the Lord polar bear of the... plunge to celebrate. <laughs> right. Let's watch Lord of the Rings on uh, network TV because the commercials. Anyway, that's a that's a whole other story. Not, not the extended version? Uh. I would because I'd see it on TV and then change the extended version on DVD, which of course I own oh, nice. because I'm I'm that person. So do I. <laughs> you and I, I think, have a lot of like sub things in common, like sub genre. Uh, we'll get into Mario Kart later, I'm sure. <laughs> intimate discussions about the fine tunings of Mario Kart. Um, so yeah, back in 2005, you it was like you know you get diagnosed today in 2018, uh, going into 19. You immediately grab your phone, you or your parents grab your phone, and you search for, you know, I have type 1 diabetes, what now? Uh, back then, that wasn't a thing. Uh, and then, you know, again, back 20 years before that, 19 years before that, it definitely wasn't a thing. 
Mm-mm. Yeah, so, I remember putting diabetes into Google for the first time when I was like 24 and finding a bunch of reasons why life was basically going to suck. And that was such a, a hard search return page to look at and say, wow, that's that's the future. That's terrible. Well, right. And I think, you know, that kind of goes back to like different different diagnosis stories, right? You not everybody's diagnosis are created equal. I think it's probably the biggest thing I've learned from this podcast over the years. You know, some people get a pretty dire outlook of what their life's going to be like. And if you're left to your own devices at that time, um, you know, you could find much of the same. Thankfully, I think there's still a lot of that today. I think a lot of fear mongering, a lot of negative, a lot of, uh, you know, hate using the term of fake news out there for Mm -hmm. life with diabetes. (laughs) But, um, you know, now looking at, you know, people like yourself and, and the, I think you mentioned on your, on your website, like five other diabetes bloggers from, you know, the early days, mm-hmm. uh, now into this sort of sprawling diabetes community. Um, you know, there's a little bit of hope out there for people. Sure. And that, and that's kind of like the weird divide too, because when I was diagnosed, there was a lot, I don't know if it, I want to say it was fake news, but it wasn't necessarily outcomes were not as good as they are now, we didn't have the tools, we didn't have the resources, and we weren't given the right sort of instruction from our clinicians. We were fed a lot of fear instead of hope because they had so much to fear. And so I think we've come a long way as a community, but also as people. Like, we get to have the privilege of growing old and doing and getting annoyed by all the old people things, you know, like when your knees start to make a certain noise or when you're like, oh, man, I've got to look at AARP. And you're like, hell, yeah, I get to look at AARP because I get to be an old lady with diabetes. Like, that was not a bill of goods that was sold to me when I was diagnosed uh, completely. But I feel like people are given that sort of narrative of, you're going to be all right, you're going to have to do a lot of extra weird things and things might get stressful, but you get to be an old (laughs) lady someday. So like, that's a nice rewarding sort of um, thing to get when you're diagnosed instead of here are all these bad things that are going to happen to you. It's incredible, really. I think one of the things Mm -hmm. that gets me so excited about, I mean, living that little glimmer of hope, right, of living with diabetes today I've had some people on this podcast who've had type one for over 58, 59 years. Mm-hmm. You know, they were using cow insulin and boiling, boiling syringes uh, yeah. and they were glass, you know, just when they got started when they were kids and their parents were doing the best that they could. And I look at them today and they're totally high functioning adults uh, with mm-hmm. great lives and grandchildren in some cases. And I, I think of myself as like, okay, 50, 50 years from now, uh, outcomes are only going to get better for me. And right. this gives me a lot of hope cure or not. I think, you know, today you get diagnosed, you can have your pick of the litter of amazing CGM technology, research pumps or MDIs or smart pens, you know, you name it. Technology right. is there. And there's also this community and educational aspect that wasn't there, uh, even five, 10 years ago. So yeah, that's right. It's a, uh, it's an exciting time. Uh, the the term T1D Renaissance got coined by a guest on this podcast, and um, <laughs> I've fully stolen that and present and made presentations on it. So uh, yeah, because I think it is like there's a community aspect, there's a technology aspect, and for the first time, the outcome doesn't always have to seem so grim. Yeah, that's right. We're we're motivated a lot more by the hope than the fear now, and that's that's a huge paradigm shift that I'm grateful for. So how did you? Let's go back to before six until me the weird math misnomer um <laughs> let's, let's go let's go back to uh growing up uh young carrie and and your family and living with type 1 diabetes what do you what do you remember about life with type 1 early on 
Uh, one of the first things I remember was, well, two things in the hospital. I remember taught to give an injection on an orange and I, and that is not something that's completely phased out at this point. Sometimes they give newly diagnosed people now that, that pad of fake skin. Have you seen that? It's disgusting looking. I have. Yeah. It looks like a wallet, but rubber. Yeah. But like a wallet made out of chicken fat or something. It's just a weird thing. Right. And so people inject now on that, but I was given an orange and that was weird because they said, practice, practice, practice on this orange. It's so much like human skin. And then when I had to go and give the needles to myself, I was like, I'm not an orange. This is a completely different feel. So <laughs> that was kind of weird. But then the other thing I remember is um, the kid that I shared a hospital room with at the Rhode Island Hospital was this kid named Eddie, and he had gotten bit by a spider. And so he had this giant like welt on his leg, and he had this infection that had grown around it, and the nurses were always coming in and checking his antibiotics and that sort of stuff. So he had a lot of attention and a very obvious physical symptom. And he was a couple years older than me. I think he was nine, and I was seven. I remember him turning to me on like the third or fourth day that they were in there because I was there for 12 days. Um, and he's like, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I said, oh, I, I have uh, type 1 diabetes. And these words are all new to my mouth. So I'm all gleeful saying it because I didn't know what it was or any of that. And he's like, oh, well, show me. And he's pointing to his spider bite going, well, this is mine. And I'm like, I don't have anything to show you. I look completely the same. And that kind of blew my mind that this huge thing had happened. And everybody seemed really stressed out about it. And the learning curve was tremendous. But I was small. And when I looked at myself, I was like, I look the same. I kind of feel the same. Um, what makes this such a big deal? And so it took a long time for me to kind of understand the, not the severity of what I was diagnosed with, but more like what a chronic illness meant, what it meant to have something forever and sort of the minutia that diabetes invades all the time and to really wrap my head around the fact that this is going to be an all day, every day sort of thing. And I've got to get my game face on for the rest of my life. And that was, there was a learning curve to that that has taken me a long time to sort of work through. I didn't have something I could point to and say, well, here's my spider bite. That always stuck with me. It's always interesting. I, I've i learned so much about diabetes before the age that I was diagnosed since getting more involved in the community. Because for me at 16, I was a pretty mature 16-year-old. I got it. I was like, I got to take care of myself. Like I understood the regimen. I knew what I wanted to do. So I was given the tools and I was able to go. But, you know, talking to parents trying to explain to a young child why, uh, you know, you have to give them a shot before they eat mm -hmm. or test their blood sugar. They don't want to. It's painful. It's annoying. And there's not, and to them, there's nothing different about them. That's like such a poignant, very difficult to grasp. And I think, that you know, that's for you at seven years old to, to have that right away. Like what a, I don't know, what a really interesting way of introducing you to this life with a chronic illness. Well, because I remember asking my parents, I was like, chronic, so is that like Christmas? And I remember them saying, well, no, it's like all the Christmases. And that was very heady, like, oh, my God, all the Christmases, that's a lot of Christmases. <laughs> and so you sort of fast forward and think that's intense. But it, I, I've had parallels as an adult, and I have two kids myself. I have an eight-year-old and a two-year-old. And when my daughter was two, she's the eight-year-old, um, or two and a half, I remember her asking me casually in the car while we were driving. She's like, Mom, how many birthdays do you have left? And I was like, you know, the screech of the tires as I pull the car over. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Like, what? kind of a question is that but I feel like that sort of encapsulated that moment of realizing diabetes was forever when you kind of get it wrapped up in that sort of a concise question it sort of blew my mind yeah and I think it's one of those things where initially you have this relationship with sickness where okay how long do I get better and there's a mm -hmm. there's a shelf life to whatever it is whether you have pneumonia whether you have mono whether you have a cold there's sort of a prescriptive you know you go through you take some medicine for a few days you start to get better you turn the corner you move on um, right maybe if it's really bad you go to the doctor and then this sort of chronic illness which is just 
you know, never goes away. And it's always sort of your your daily battle of you know, whatever that case is, fight, fighting for your better outcomes or trying mm-hmm. to exercise or just be a normal kid. And it doesn't go away. So there's almost no reward. Right. I think that's where a lot of people see burnout, uh, especially early on or when they're in their teen years. Did you ever experience any of that? Uh, and how do you address it even today? I did. And just kind of to double back really quickly, it's interesting because you were diagnosed when you were 16 and I was diagnosed at the age of seven. And I don't, I didn't have a sense of what illness was. So diabetes shaped my sense of illness. And to me, a cold can be far more annoying than diabetes on any given day because diabetes is the thing that I'm used to the most. And so when I'm snuffly and my you know sinuses are all clogged and I'm like, oh my God, I feel terrible. I'm like, this is the worst. Oh, poor me. And then other people look at diabetes and go, wow, that must be really tough. And I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever, diabetes. I have a cold. This is terrible. Like it's a funny sort of um, perspective that it gives you on on illness and that sort of stuff. Because I don't feel disrupted by diabetes on a day-to-day basis, but I feel really jacked up by a cold. And so it's just, it's a, it's a weird thought process. But, um, and I already forgot the question that you asked me about burnout. What was it? <laughs> Can you ask me again? Uh, I think it's just like the fact that it, you're, you know, your day to day, like carrying that burden of, you know, hey, I'm working, I'm doing as the best I can, and diabetes is not going away, uh, mm-hmm. especially as a kid or in your teen years and beyond. So as a kid, I don't remember experiencing burnout, but I do remember um, really bucking up against some of the daily duties of diabetes. Like I, I have clear memories of hiding behind the dining room drapes in our house when my mom wanted to give me my dinner injection. And I mean, she could see my feet sticking out the bottom of the curtain. So like she knew. I was there. I was not hiding. But it was a really upsetting dynamic that she needed to do this thing, give me the injection. And I was really resistant to accepting it. And so that, you know, that was probably stressful and cause burnout for her. But it wasn't a term that was really talked about. And caregiver support wasn't wasn't what it is now. What you know, my mom wishes she had access to what parents now have access to or adults like us have access to. So that was that. Um, but when I was a teenager, my parents uh, actually divorced when I was 20, 19, 20. And so that threw me into more of a burnout phase than anything else, uh, mostly because there was such a big issue that was being dealt with that diabetes fell by the wayside. And that experience over the course of like a year or so taught me that diabetes can't ever actually fall by the wayside without there being serious repercussions. So my A1Cs were the highest they had ever been during that time. And it was because I just didn't care and I needed to still care. And that's also a strange dynamic to have something that you truly can't ignore or it will eat you. And that is not, that's a hard thing to continue to kind of maintain every single day. And that's what we struggle with is people with type one or struggle, whatever word you want to use. Um, That's what we're like, we're trying to maintain this baseline that other people take for granted and it can really wear you down. But I think the thing that's helped me the most in kind of managing that is the sort of interaction with my peers. I didn't have a lot of that as a kid. I didn't know other people who didn't make insulin. So to have all of you guys now and to know that I'm not the only one who does this sort of nonsense and gets frustrated by a you know a borked up infusion set or who celebrates a, a 100 on a meter, like that's a weird sort of dynamic and that's weird stuff to be upset or celebrate. But you guys in this community, you really get that. And that means an awful lot to me and helps keep me out of burnout a lot. Let's talk about that uh, for a second because – you know, for years, all of us only had access to the people with diabetes in our own community, like in our own physical mm-hmm. world, right? I think there right. were the first guy I ever met with diabetes went to my high school and his parents uh, and my parents were, were good friends and knew each other. Um, so I talked to him about it. He would took me to lunch one day 
<laughs> and uh-huh. we talk, when I was in high school, which was like not a thing you do in high school, like taking someone to lunch was weird. <laughs> so it was like just a strange interaction. And we didn't have that. You know, we, we had been friends when we were younger, didn't have that much in common at the time. But, you know, he was trying to like, hey, you're going to be fine. It's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I had two other kids in my immediate community that um, bro- were brother and sister and neither, you know, were, were going through their own set of like uh, sort of what you mentioned, I think, like outside external issues causing them to put diabetes on the back burner and, mm-hmm. you know, the suffering that came from that at the time. Right. And uh, so, yeah, that was those are the only people I knew with diabetes, you know, really for the first 10 years. And I was like, OK, well. I don't really have anything in common with, you know, their treatment or their lifestyle. So, like, I must not have anything in common with people with diabetes. (laughs) That totally changed, obviously, uh, you know, three and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like you said, now I can – every day I see somebody going through something that I relate to in some way. Yeah. And it's amazing how even when I meet people in person – People I've never met, don't have had no interactions with. Instantly, there's something that can that we immediately bond with on a on a level yeah. that nobody else can. So what's that like? No, but that's I think that's beautiful because there's something so unique about like if you're out and you see someone's pump tubing hanging out, you don't need to get their first name, you don't need to find out where they're going or where they've come from. You know something about something so intimate in their life that people in their intimate circles probably don't even understand on the level that you do this cursory stranger that passes by and says, I have an insulin pump too. And they go, yeah. And that like that electric moment is so awesome because you know, in that instant that you, you are not alone and that there's so much power to that. And so much like, um, inspiration on, you know, that just finding out that you are not the only person who does these things. Like you said three and a half years ago, you, you started all of this. Mm -hmm. And so do you feel like you've been, you've become more forgiving of yourself throughout that. Cause I've found that for me, like seeing other people who are walking the same walk, I'm a little more forgiving when I slip up because I know there's a group of people that will help lift me when I feel like this is getting very heavy. And then I in turn get to help lift somebody else when they're having a moment that feels really intense. And it just is like this rolling support mechanism that makes every day just that much easier. You know, I don't think I realized it. I think maybe I took it for granted a little bit at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then la- uh, almost a year ago, I guess, I, I went off my pump and I went off my prescription insulin and I lived totally over the counter for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And the and I did a video about it every day. It was this big, you know, the, the amount of effort it took, first of all, was just not worth it. But second of all, <laughs> was yeah. incredible that every night, like uh, after watching a video, somebody would say, hey, like. I, this is, I, I really respect what you're doing or, you know, I know you've had a really rough blood sugar day, but hang in there. We're pulling for you. And yeah. just like total strangers, people that have not messaged me before or since. And I read those and those meant so, a lot to me. And I think like there, I don't know, there's no way to tell somebody that like in your first interaction, but it just like those, those things have, I think a cumulative effect, mm-hmm. the cumulative effect of community. That's a mouthful. Uh, but it's just, <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> I, I think it, the outcomes is, you know, both like clinically as well as just mental health wise. Yeah. I, I mean, mm-hmm. you talked about softening edges and like being easier on yourself. I mean, I can't even express to you how valuable that is in a life with diabetes, being able to just kind of brush some things off, uh, yeah. and, and continue to move forward because, if not, if we get too hung up on one number or one A1C or one bad day or whatever the case is, the next day is harder. You're fighting that uphill battle. And I think mm-hmm. softening those edges and really relying on community at times can 
you know, just make this load a little lighter, like you said. Plus, yeah. It... Um, sorry, I just cut you off, but I was no, at I was at ADA conference this summer, and there was like all, a million boards with like research and all these like you know incredible scientific developments on it. But the one that I gravitated towards was uh, does reading diabetes blogs and social media give you better A1C outcomes, and that was the title of the of the board. So. I like lost myself in this giant maze of boards and like finally found it. And the answer was yes. And I knew that already because my own clinical outcomes are better from the time that I started the podcast and Instagram to today. And, and do you remember the authors of that paper? By oh, any chance? I, I don't, but I could find it. Um, I will, I will make this promise on the air. I will link to it in the show notes. Well, I, if it's the people that I suspect, I'm fairly certain that the author has had type one for 25 years and co-authored that that paper with his wife who parents their child with type one if it's the same couple i'm thinking of so it's well, like a really intense and intimate connection see like and that's the other thing uh it's just i think it's the just the nature of community in itself like we live in a very small world with diabetes we live mm-hmm. in an even smaller world of people with diabetes who are active and pursuing the latest and greatest in knowledge and technology and community mm-hmm. um which is great which is the tip of the iceberg um, and so, yeah, when people, when you start to connect the dots a little bit, this person knows this person knows this person. Yeah. It's really just like the three degrees of Carrie Sparling. No, less. it's just, I mean, you said something earlier um, where you said something along the lines of, and I can't explain to you what it's like to have access to this community or what it feels like to have someone soften the edges or that sort of thing. And it just, it stuck in my head because you don't have to explain it to someone like me or someone like us, because that's the part we all get. Like there's no need to put more words behind that because we we get that instantly as a community. Like I said, before you even know someone's name, you know that they get that aspect of it. And that is pure magic. Do you remember the first person? Let's let's like fast forward from adolescent carry forward a little bit. Let's even get through like you've launched and, and started uh, Six Until Me. You're blogging. Mm-hmm. It's 2005. The internet is the wild, wild west. Do you mm-hmm. remember like the first few interactions you you had with other people with diabetes through the internet? Oh yeah, definitely. So um, I, like I said, I, I put diabetes into Google and got a bunch of crappy results. And at the time I was dating and looking for a new job and all this sort of stuff. So I wanted to find people who were like doing the things that I was doing instead of the things that I was afraid that were going to happen. And the first people that I stumbled across, a couple of them are still around. So I know you know Scott Johnson who writes Scott's Diabetes. And he is he was one of the very first that I came across. He started his blog in December of 2004, and I started mine in May of 2005. So he was just ahead of me in, in so much as he had a bunch of posts that I could go back and read. And it weren't they weren't these medically laced jargon, blah, 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 like crappy posts from some clinician. It was from this guy who lived the same life that I did, at least pancreasly speaking. And that really resonated for me because that's what I was looking for. And then I found uh, Amy Tenderich, who was writing diabetes mine and she started in february of 2005 and then there was this woman who went by the um nom de plume of uh violet and she was a little bit older than me but in the same sort of life stage and i just clung to these people like a life preserver because they were the first narratives about diabetes that i that i came across and i was so inspired by the stuff that they were sharing because it was what i was looking for that that's what kind of spurred me to start sharing my story because i knew if i was looking for it there had to be at least one other person who also wanted to read about whether or not you hold that diabetes card close on a first date, or how do you disclose diabetes to a potential new employer, or how do you hide this device in this dress that doesn't hide much, but I still want to make sure I'm taking care of myself and, and that sort of stuff. Like 
those were the questions that I wanted answered. And this community has risen to that occasion and made it so that like, it's not just medical advice nonsense. It's integrating that medical advice into real life so that we get to see how we live with diabetes and not just live around diabetes. You know what I mean? Well, I couldn't echo that more. And I'm like sitting here sort of nostalgic thinking of <laughs> who my like four people were uh, when I kind of joined this. And like, also, first of all, Scott Johnson uh, could He's not. Awesome. I don't know if I've ever met a more warm, just kind, awesome mm-hmm. human in My a first interaction. My with him. <laughs> As she should be. He's fantastic. He, he is such a nice person. And just getting to meet him in person, um, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you as well. I think we met in the past in Dallas uh, at one of your uh, speaking engagements at a Type One Nation. But uh, to to meet Scott like face to face. Uh, and just like this guy comes in with this big hug and big smile, and you're just like, "Wow, I, yeah. I don't know, who, I don't know who this guy is 100, percent but I just like him a lot. Let me, like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm down for whatever he's like, whatever he's pitching, I'm buying it." Um, <laughs> and he, he was just like the nicest, warmest guy, uh, yeah. and you know, energy fills a room. And I think like you could say that about a few other people uh, in the community as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I just, I caught myself like, as you were, as you were mentioning those and naming off those names, I was like, you know, there are four or five names that I can name as well. Uh, and so I'm going to text them all later. Uh, totally. Because you know, that in those moments, it's like, okay, yeah, these are the people that like, I, I know them, like, I know what they're going through. These are my, these are my people. And, uh, without them, you know, this wouldn't, this would be a lot more difficult. Well, then also, like, I remember um, meeting Scott and becoming friends. George Simmons, who writes Ninjabetic. Uh, there were just a bunch of people back then. But I remember when the – I used to call them my diabetes friends. And I remember when the diabetes part of that friendship just got lopped off. And I just called them my friends. And that was a really nice transition because that's what they became. Some of these people are like family to me. And that is, again, pretty awesome. It is. And, like, I – none of them live within, you know, a two-hour flight of where I live yeah, same. and at the same time I you know communicate with them more than my college roommates you know so mm-hmm. it's, where do you it, live I forget I live in Dallas so oh, okay um which is great because it's a hub airport anybody can mm-hmm. get here no one ever comes here on purpose but I can get them here if I try hard <laughs> enough um which is nice uh, sorry city of Dallas I love you you're my home um <laughs> So let's talk you know, it's through. Been Rhode Island, right? Like we barely have an airport, so I'm, it's it's okay. I feel you. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, at least that's like an endearing part of Rhode Island, right? Like, like I don't know. You could ask nine or ten people in Texas. Nine of them couldn't tell you a city in Rhode Island, just like oh, that they know that it's a place. No, it's a state. Right. <laughs> um. So let's let's fast forward a little bit. Um, sure. Again, I'm, I'm just pressing rewind. Fast forward. Um, you've now you're in the community mm-hmm. you're uh, you're writing you're when did you know that i'm trying to think of this in in the and put it succinctly when did you know that this was what you were supposed to do when it when was there a moment was there a oh. because i because i think in creative projects and this is something that i when i talk to people like you i really want to dig into because it's something i go through with myself like mm-hmm. A creative life of work is a life. It's a long process. There's no set timetable. There's no moment where you're like, you know what? There may be a moment when you're finished, but there's no like Mount Olympus conquering. We finally won the battle type of type of <laughs> moment. Um, but when did you know that this was like that? All this effort was put towards what you were, you know, truly meant to do. This this sort of finding your voice or like really understanding that this was this mattered and this was a really important thing. 
man, that's that's an intense question because I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if I do know that this is what I'm supposed to. All all I know is that like there there are people that are super kind and very generous and saying kind things about what my story has done to help improve their life. And that means the world to me. But I don't think these people understand that it's completely reciprocal. And so I started this because I felt alone. I was very lonely when it came to diabetes. I had lots of friends. My family is very supportive. I have lots of people in my home base that are awesome. But this diabetes part of my life um, was very isolated and I needed some support there. And so all of these people who have the opportunity to say, oh, this person means something to me or that person means something to me, like all of those people just raising their hand and saying, oh, I have diabetes too and I do all this crap as well. That is exactly what I was looking for. And so the reasons that I started doing this remain the reasons that I continue to do this. So in terms of it being like a, like a, like a calling, I, I don't know if it, I don't know if it, if it is, but I do know that by doing this, my life has improved both psychosocial health wise and physical health. My diabetes is well managed because I have access to people with big brains and dogs. Like that stuff is really important to me. Was that your dog? <laughs> that I'm was hoping. my dog. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, but you know what I mean? Like you get, you, you get to feed off of your community and you grow as a result. And that's, that's, I mean, I've had people who are, my first Dexcom system came from a lady who read my blog and saw that I was having trouble getting my insurance to cover it. And this was in 2006. And she sent me one that she had. She just put that thing in the mail and mailed it to my office. A woman that I didn't know just knew that I was financially struggling and that I was having trouble accessing the technology as I was hoping to prepare for a pregnancy. And she's like, I've got your back, lady. I don't know you. You don't know me, but I'm going to send you this incredible medical device to help make your life easier. Like, what is more cool than that? You know, it's Our it's unbelievable. We look each other up because I think ultimately we have each other's backs because, like mm-hmm. you said, uh, I do all this crap too. Yeah, because we can't have each other's pancreases. That would be a complete waste of time. So yeah, it's totally. Way to There's no that. pancreas swap with diabetes because, like, that be would, what a what a waste. Uh, my the, I got my first CGM, my first Dexcom from a podcast guest who, yeah, after she got off the podcast, uh, Christine Fallibel, she was like, "Hey, um, oh yeah." She's like, I get the sense that you don't have a CGM. And I was like, no, I don't. Like, I don't feel like I need one. My A1C is fine, blah, blah, blah. She's like, no, stop. You're stupid. You need a CGM. <laughs> You're going to love it. And I was like, okay, fine. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to link you with my Dexcom rep, and they're going to hook you up. So I was like, okay, cool. So they got through, got my insurance, and I had it within a week. And it was way easier so. than I had read it was going to be to get. And, yeah, getting a CGM, CGM absolutely changed my life. Uh, I don't use the Dexcom anymore, but I still have a CGM, and it's great. Right. And I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't have made that jump uh, because I didn't feel like I needed it. My diabetes uh, mantra at that point was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I felt like it was fine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's just me. I'm like, a, I'm a pretty regular dude. I don't like going to the dentist because like, I feel like my teeth are fine, but you know, uh-huh. I'm going to go. I'm going this week, actually. It was oh, one, of my, uh, one of my New Year's resolutions. So making it you happen. Waited till December. <laughs> hey, well, waited, waited is the wrong word, but uh, yes. <laughs> Oh, you could just say it's New Year's for like 2019. Yes. Well, you know, I want to make sure. You're ahead of the curve. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'm just getting uh, just getting ahead of the uh, ahead of the game. Off on the good foot. Get fun. that jump. <laughs> so, all right, let's talk through now. Blogger to author. Are we jumping uh, forward? Okay, back forward. Okay. Yeah, I think forward. Do we need to go okay. backward? You tell me. Nah, no, I I like the timeline hopping, so I'm here for it. Go for okay, it. Okay, good. Um, so balancing diabetes. Uh, your mm-hmm. first, oh, yeah, your first book. Title. Um, yeah, yeah. Did you figure it out? Um, no, I would never come up with that on my own because I don't and I haven't. So whoops. Hey, it happens. (laughs) 
so putting all that effort into your in your book came out in 2014 um you know i think i read some stats like 90 percent of people say they're going to write a book and like one percent of people actually do uh congrats oh, wow. you're in the one percent um so that that's really my only qu- that's all my question I, I don't know do you want to talk about the book what was that like <laughs> like getting that you know applying that into the applying that blogging mentality but having i don't know other stakeholders or you know deadlines to meet what was that like I um, I pitched that. Well, actually, the book was pitched to me by the publishing company. It was published by Spry Publishing uh, back in 2014, and they came to me with the idea, which was really nice of them. And it took me a while to get my thoughts organized around it. And then my husband, who is a filmmaker, went on a movie shoot, and he was gone for three months. And when I was alone with our daughter while he was away, that's when I decided to write it because I like to find the most high stress times in my life to add another high stress deadline to, and it really worked out great. But um, it was one of those things where it was, I always wanted to be a writer growing up, even before I was diagnosed. Like that's one of the few things I remember about life before diabetes was that I wanted to write something. I used to write poems about our cat, which was like super fat and the word cat and fat rhyme. So there were a lot of poems about my fat cat. And so I wanted that to transition into some kind of writing career and diabetes happened to make itself known. And over a couple of decades, it became the voice that I chose to pursue. But I know that there's more that I want to write about other than diabetes. And so that's kind of what I'm in pursuit of now is transitioning away from all this like pancreatically centric sort of writing and into a more fiction realm because I think that would be fun to pursue something that's not real. There's a lot of realness uh, in sharing your diabetes story. And sometimes it's a little intense. So I'd like to fan out and find something that's made up. Yeah, isn't it? it is a little intense. Um, and as the, I don't want to say I'm struggling with the word owner. I, I'm not an owner of a fat cat. I'm a life partner, <laughs> a life partner of a fat cat, I think. Um, so I totally caregiver. relate to that. Yeah, I'm a caregiver. He's more of a caregiver. I don't know. Uh, Michael J. Fox, you are, you're more than you know. You is fat. it right in front of you or are you having like a omniscient sort of conversation with it? My office is in his room, basically. He has an oh, entire room in my uh, it's not my office, it's his room. So uh, he's currently locked out of it, though, because he's allowed occasionally. So gotcha. he's made appearances on this podcast, but there's no episode with him. It's a big point of contention. So, oh, well, I think it's I mean, it's time you have to send the text messages to those four people. And then you have to let the cat in and interview it. Yep, it's time. It's time to let the cat out of the bag. Wow. Right. Can't, can't believe I said <laughs> that. Um, okay, so let's fast forward to today. You are fast forward. Got it. Yeah, we're, we're continuing to hit that fast forward button. Uh, <laughs> you're speaking, you are a mother of two, you're writing, mm-hmm. uh, you're writing diabetes related and non-diabetes related. Yeah. How do you find the balance in all of that? Um, what What is your, I mean, because I think people, there's, there's questions that I get asked regularly about diabetes and diabetes community and getting involved okay. is, is one of the more popular ones. Um, like how, how do I get involved? How did you get involved? How did you get started? How do you uh, balance your real life with your diabetes life? Um, and in an effort to make my answers better, now I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> I think balance is a misnomer. I'm sorry that it's in my book title and I have not achieved it in any realm of my existence. So like, sorry, can't answer that one. But I get that question a lot too. Are you saying people ask you, how do I get involved in this? Yeah. So so when I got started, I was I got in, I started sharing my story at a time when not a lot of other people were. And so it just, I got in at a good time and I, rose my, I raised my voice at an opportune time that it got noticed uh, readily and, and has maintained because I've decided to maintain the blog. And so I think that worked out really well and to my advantage. 
But like, I feel like a lot of people want to get involved and they get daunted by the fact that they might not get read as quickly or they might not get as much feedback uh, socially or just it just doesn't seem like it's enough. And I always want to just take those people and remind them that their one story can touch one person and that can make all the difference for those two people. And so it doesn't matter if there are 10 people reading your 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 content or uh, 10,000 people reading it. The point is, is that you are making a difference for both yourself and for the person who's looking for that kind of information. And so I always want, I think more is more. Like I think as our community grows, that tide rises and all of our boats go up with it. I like that expression because it makes it seem like we're kind of buoyant for one another and I'm into that. And so I think that the more people who are sharing their stories, we help change the societal perception of what diabetes is. And so it doesn't get perceived as just this like rainbows and unicorns sort of thing that people who are struggling look at and say, oh, I could never do that. I'm never 100 or I don't want to run up that mountain or whatever the hell people are doing. And and on the flip side, you get to see people who are talking about difficult things like complications and depression and, uh, you know, all different mental health sorts of things and things that their bodies are going through that are tougher to share, but just as important because it lets someone else know who's dealing with that, that they also aren't alone. Like I feel like our growing community gives a really fair assessment of what day to day with type one diabetes is like, because we're willing to be vulnerable and put it out there. And so when people say, how do I get involved? It's like, find the medium that works best for you and tell your story in the way that feels the most uh, genuine and authentic and even vulnerable, because that's the stuff that really resonates for people. So don't be afraid to be a little bit afraid. You know what I mean? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think, you know, going back to what you said about not caring about whether it's having an impact or whether one person reads it or a hundred people or a hundred thousand or whatever, yeah. you know, that for me in this podcast, that was always the goal. Help one person from the beginning. That's right. Most days that person is me. Um, I said, yeah. Why and, not though? Yeah. Why not? And I think that, you know, in an increasingly metric driven world where we're able to see everything we ever posted on social media, how many people saw it, how many people liked it, whatever the case, um, we start to hold ourselves accountable to, you know, things that are not important. And we get, yeah. you know, we miss the, the original mission, which is, you know, contribute to a world uh, to help people live better with type one diabetes. And, you know, sometimes that's being a friend, but it's always being yourself. And that's right. And I really like what you said about the metrics driven sort of expectations. I wish people would care less about that because it really doesn't matter how many followers or blah, blah, blah. It's, that's not what this whole thing is about. That's not why people do this. And if it is why people do this and they might want to do a little bit of a cross check on, on why they're involved in the first place and reassess, you know, maybe reshape their expectations because it's not about that. We're storytellers. That's crucial to people's uh, survival with this sometimes. Yeah, I think just having someone to relate to can be the difference between a good day and a bad day for somebody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just having a you know a person that they may never see or interact with, who knows what they're going through, um, mm -hmm. and you know, for me, I've I've found that that is so true. You know, sample yeah. si sample size of one, but uh, you know, without the community, I would have I would not have the answers to questions that I have the answers to now. Mm -hmm. um, and I would wonder a whole lot more than I than I do uh, currently. That's uh, that's awesome, though, isn't it? And it can be it can be end of two. I'll sign on to that as well. So, thinking of this, like you know, community aspect, we've talked a little bit about technology. We've talked a little bit mm -hmm. about life today with diabetes. What what is Carrie Sparling most hopeful for 
going forward with diabetes, like in the future of, of life with diabetes, what, what gives you hope? Ooh, um, two things, uh, two things are top of mind and they're very uh, specific. The first one's very specific. I, I used to hope for a cure for myself a lot. And I used to think about it and they told me, I got that five years until you'll be cured sort of nonsense when I was diagnosed. And I'm kind of mad about it, but I'm also kind of over it. And so like middle school came and went with diabetes and high school came and went with diabetes. College came and went with diabetes. Pretty sure I wasn't going to walk down the aisle with diabetes, right? But no, I did. I got married with diabetes, had my kids with diabetes. Like there's always been this preposition dangling off of everything. And I, I felt like I had to sort of let that go. And so I don't have cure expectations for myself. I really hope that technology can make it so that diabetes becomes something I think about way, way less, but with that technology comes access. And so I'm very concerned about uh, people's ability to access things as awesome as CGMs and pumps and these closed loop systems that make diabetes less of a thought process that's awesome and optimal. But on the flip side of that, people need to be able to access the basics like blood sugar monitoring and insulin and people die without insulin. So I, I feel like we've kind of moved away as a community a little bit on some discussion points from, we talk about technology a lot because it's so exciting, but we're oftentimes forgetting the people who are not accessing insulin. So when you had mentioned the uh, month that you did going off of kind of off the technology grid and you were using regular, was it? And like over the counter insulins? Regular and pH. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I saw that on your blog and I really respect that because it, it reminds us of the people who don't have access to what we might have access to. And it also is very humbling when we look at the things that we have access to, to be like, this is awesome and we should be happy about it and fight for it and kind of support the people who are in pursuit of making it better. So that's, so that's one thing that I'm, I'm really uh, excited about. And then the other thing that I think about a lot is, is prevention. And so because I don't know if diabetes for me will be cured, I look at my two kids and I'm so I'm very obsessed with them and I think they're great and I love them with everything I've got. And even though diabetes is something that I know that I can live successfully with, I still don't want them to have it. And so if there's a way that I can help push prevention trials forward and make it so that diabetes, that maybe I'm the last generation of people who have to worry about diabetes and our children, this becomes something that they don't have to sweat because tech, you know, like science figured it out and they found a way to keep them from getting it in the first place. I, I just think, I think that's where my hope lives these days because I feel like it's very possible. Our lives can be improved by leaps and bounds, but I feel like they can really work to prevent it for people who haven't been diagnosed yet. And so I really, I'm very, very hopeful about that. Well, I, I echo that sentiment about, you know, hopeful for the future as well with prevention. I do want to mm-hmm. go back because this question was about hope, but I do have, I have concerns as well about, I think I mentioned this earlier that the people that are interact in the type one diabetes online community are the, you know, the minority compared to Mm -hmm. all of the people, especially in the United States, or at least in the United States living with type one, that there's this giant silent majority of people who really couldn't care less to interact with, um, or at least in our, in, you know, that's a generalization, which I hate, but, um, (laughs) who don't maybe either don't have access or don't know where to look or aren't currently looking, to get involved with the type one diabetes community who could really benefit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's what keeps me up at night is how do I reach these people who uh, are in underserved populations who don't have access to the same type of technology, much less the same type of healthcare uh, mm-hmm. that, right. that I have. Um, and tr- coming from a place of advocacy, like how can I say that work is done when those people are not being served? So, you know, that's something for me that is, is a big priority going forward. 
I don't have the answer yet, but I think, you know, trying to search and, you know, really learn more along that journey is something that I'm really looking forward to. Um, and, you know, I just don't have the answer for it. But, you know, but it also gives me hope that it's like, okay, that if that is a problem that we're trying to solve, then we've successfully solved a couple other ones. Well, um, yeah, I mean, you saying you don't have the answer is fine. I don't think anyone has the answer, but there's a huge group of us that continue, that need to continue to ask the question. You know, why, why can't these people get access to something that we have access to? Why, why are some of these doors closed? How can we help to open them? Like, if we keep asking those questions instead of kind of going along for the ride, if we buck up against the system and stand up for people who are not raising their voices or can't raise their voices, I feel like that's our, our that might be where the calling part comes in. You know what I mean? Like, if, you ha- if you're kind of privileged enough to be able to do the sorts of things that we are able to do, it's, it's, it, we have to be able to start asking the questions that help benefit people who aren't able to be in the room. It's our job. It is. And I think like that's where advocacy begins and ends for mm-hmm. people. We advocate not just for people with diabetes, but for all people with diabetes yeah. who may or may not like our posts, download our podcasts, read our blogs, watch our videos, mm-hmm. um, but need our help. Right. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's, I know that uh, got heavy for a second. Oh, man. That got, you, what you said earlier about diabetes content being really intense, like that was it. That was the, that was the peak <laughs> for this episode. Um, okay. I ask the same question uh, on – and I've realized – I used to ask it on every interview. Lately, I just – I don't know what's gone on with my mind, but I've forgotten the last like, – maybe one or two that I've done recently. Um, but if yeah. – here, here's the context. It's very important. Um, if – Imagine you're in an airport mm-hmm. and you're at your gate. They're about to shut the door to your gate, but somebody walks up to you with uh, who's either been recently diagnosed or is struggling with their type 1 diabetes. And for whatever the reason, like you can't miss the flight. You've got you know something super serious waiting for you on the other end. Uh, so in that 30 seconds before they shut the, ga- the door to your gate, what do you tell that person? What's the one thing you tell them? Oh, my gosh. This is so specific. Oh, my gosh. So- it's so specific. I know. Um, they've just been diagnosed. Or they're struggling. Uh, I have this horrible habit of giving out my email or my phone number and telling them that I'm really sorry that I'm about to get on a plane, but I've had type 1 diabetes for 32 years. Um, I've seen a lot of things come and go. I feel like the future has a lot of hope. I have two kids. I'm very happy. Uh, there's all sorts of crap that goes right and wrong, just like in everybody else's life. Just call me if you need someone to talk to. Or you can email me. And then that would be probably the whole discussion. And then I would have like so many regrets that I didn't kind of skip the flight and sit and talk with them. But at the same time, if that person can just reach out to me just for like a second, and then I can connect them hopefully to all the rest of everybody that can help shepherd them on this journey so that they are led by hope and not by fear. I love it. Also, that was like right under the 30 second mark. I like never (laughs) hold, I never hold anybody to the actual mark, but you really did make it underneath. So congrats. That's huge. Thank you. And, and also really poignant and, and lovely. That's that's great. <laughs> I, too, have a bad habit of giving out my email address to people. Yeah, oh, and I hate flying, too. So, like, I'm probably already wicked nervous about getting on the plane in the first place. So I'd be like, oh, my God, you have diabetes. It's going to be all right. But I'm really scared to get on the plane. Diabetes is, like, fine. But the plane is scary. You're going to be fine. Like, So it would be a more awkward transition. Was that the most New England thing you've ever said? You're wicked nervous about flying? 
I think I think that's just the wimpiest thing I've said, okay. and I say it regularly, but I say okay. wicked all the time, yeah. All right, that's just good. I just want to make everyone sh- like for sure you're from Rhode Island. It's not just a yeah, sure thing. though. But I pronounce my R's. I think for the most part. So there's like a weird agnostic sort of dialect. All right. To to make sure that we stay further off topic, uh, yes, this is bonus round. Oh um, yes. Oh, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. Uh, if you if you're thinking Mario Kart, so that's where we're going. So a few a few I guess a week ago or so, I had a pretty terrible 48 hours of diabetes from a failed site to that was literally built like bent 90 degrees um, to a site that wasn't absorbing very well and all this stuff anyway like blood sugars in the 600s for you know three or four hours late at night and I needed to get my blood sugar flowing so I'm Instagram storing about playing Mario Kart and who slides into my DMs with Mario Kart recre- uh, recommendations but Carrie Sparling I give me it. give me your Mario Kart character, vehicle, and favorite map and why. Ooh, favorite map and why. I am all day Metal Mario. I live for him. I don't know what it is, but he just does it for me. Um, favorite vehicle, I don't do well on any of the motorcycles. So it's got to be like a four-wheeled, the big orange tires. We're talking about Switch, right? Yeah, we're talking in, okay. uh, Nintendo Switch right now because, you know, why not? Okay. <laughs> so I like the big orange puffy tires. You know the ones I'm talking yep, about? I do. And I and I like the I like the squirrel for the hang glider thing. So I'm into all of that and I pick the same thing every time and my daughter is really good at it now and sometimes she beats me when we race. But um I never let her take Metal Mario at the same time cuz I feel very possessive about him. Uh, but favorite course? I don't I don't know. I don't know if I have a favorite course. That's I don't fair. like I don't like the Zelda one. For some reason that one really bothers me. I don't like the Animal Crossing one either. But uh, the bit with the dolphins, is that Dolphin Shoal? Yeah, I think so. And then the airplane hangar one. I don't know if they're the same ones, but what it would be my favorite. The Mount, Wario Mountain. Oh, now we're talking. Love yeah. me some Wario Mountain. Simple, yeah. straight up, very fun. But the, but the loops aren't the same. You're going down the mountain, you're going through the trees, you're on the slalom. Like I'm, the whole, It's not the same circle. Right. It, 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 it always changes. And, and it mm-hmm. threw me off at first because as a... As a Mario Kart classic, as as a fan of the classics, you know you go around you go around the you go around the track three times. It's the same. Uh, Warrior Mountain, right. it, it doesn't work that way. No, and I was like, and wow. you get dropped out of a blimp too. Don't you get like dropped out of a yeah? Because you start on the top of the mountain. Something? I mean, yeah. in, logically, it makes sense. Like you couldn't do a lap on a mountain unless you went back up. Mm-hmm. So I you see, know, I need better challengers, and I don't mean to wreck my family, but they are no good at Mario Kart. My daughter's getting better, but the rest of them are not very good. And so I never get a chance to get, like, the good stuff because it's always banana peels and maybe a green shell, like, occasionally. But I never get any good stuff because I'm usually rocking first place. So what am I going to do? I've I've never gotten a star playing by myself. Um, (laughs) So, because, yeah, same, uh, I I relate to that. So I guess we're just going to have to start an online diabetes Mario Kart society as if we needed another place right. to have community but maybe we do it's niche of niche of niche but wait who's your character though you can't ask me mine and not show yours okay so yeah uh, mine is king boo um, oh all right because i mean honestly what's what's more what's more rob how than king boo um I, I can't i can't i don't know nothing uh, i also like the big bike um mm-hmm. i'm a big oh. i'm a big motorcycle guy i don't need acceleration just give me that top speed we're good to go okay um and I also like I don't have the I have not unlocked the squirrel yet, uh, so I, I Wait, don't what? know I don't know what that's like. I'm a parachute guy though because I need that weight reduced. Okay. Oh, that's right. Because you're a king boo. There I'm you king go. boo. He's a big guy. You know, it's a whole oh thing. yeah. 
He's a ghost, though. It doesn't really make sense to me, again, logically. Like, how does he but, hold the steering wheel? Uh, you know, his ways are not our ways. That's all I got to say. <laughs> um, great. I challenge you. If there is a way, I challenge you. We will figure it out. I think there is a way. <laughs> so uh, I accept. Gratefully accepted. Okay. Uh, Carrie Sparling, you are six until me on all social media. You are six until me.com. Uh, your book is Balancing Diabetes. You are all around the U.S. speaking uh, at Type 1 Nations. And I'm a big fan. I'm so glad you took this time out uh, to spend with us. And, uh, you know, can't wait till the next time we get to hang out, interact, whatever the case is. It was my pleasure. Seriously, thanks for having me. It was a good, it was a good talk. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It's been an amazing journey thus far. And I have a lot of really great stuff coming up in the future. Uh, so I'm going to do something that I haven't asked before. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, A, I would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast just so you get the notifications whenever we publish new episodes because if you've been listening for a while, you know I don't always publish them consistently. Sometimes I'll publish five in a week. Sometimes it'll be only a couple in a month and you need to know when these episodes drop. So be sure to subscribe. And if you like the podcast, be sure to go to your preferred platform like iTunes and leave a review. I would love to boost my reviews and I've never asked you guys to do that before. So I figured you don't ASK, you don't GET. I would love a review from you. So I want to hear from you there. Also, we are now available on Spotify. Turns out I was just submitting it to Spotify incorrectly, but I corrected that. So now we're on Spotify. So if that's your preferred listening platform, be sure to subscribe on there. Also, just want to let you know that in 2019, we have an awesome new program coming called Tools of Type 1s. It's going to be on this podcast, so you don't have to subscribe anywhere new, but it's going to be an entirely new form of programming with some of your favorite Type 1 personalities. So they're going to be two a week starting January 8th. Be sure to tune in, and I'm going to blast all the messaging I can all around. So be sure to listen to Tools of Type 1s launching January 8th, and thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast.